much I called you about. Family tree? Did you talk to your daddy? We maybe can. Welcome to 200 a Day, a podcast where we explore the 70s television detective show, The Rockford Files. As always, I am Nathan Paletta. And I'm Epidiah Rabishaw. And we are throwing back to another season one episode. Yeah. For consideration this week, what are we looking at this time, Epi? We are looking at Just By Accident, which is, I believe, the 23rd episode? 22nd episode? 21st. That was close. You could tell it's an early episode because everyone's dressed like they're in the 70s. Mm-hmm. Um, <laughs> I, I picked this episode because I wanted to see some chasing action with some cars, and I could not remember uh, if this had any, but I knew cars were involved, and... I was in for a bit of a surprise, as we'll probably find out. Yeah, it may not have lived up to expectations uh, in the car department, unfortunately. We'll get into that later. There is some exciting uh, explosions and derby action, oh, however. Yeah. So yeah. we weren't totally disappointed. The preview montage uh, makes sure you know that that's going to happen. There's lots of vehicular onslaught going on in that. Yeah, ending with the shot of... Jim Rockford behind the wheel of a car as flames are coming up over the, the hood. Very dramatic. What I don't know, because I'm watching this montage and I'm not paying close attention to the type of car he's driving, I just know it's the same color as his car. Mm -hmm. So I assumed it was his car and I started to get all like heart palpitation, like, no, not the Firebird. As we've established, the Firebird is a very distinctive character and we feel very protective of yeah. it. So <laughs> anytime the Firebird's in danger, it's like, oh no. And, and the only other thing I want to point out about this preview montage is that there's this moment at the very beginning of it where he's talking to a woman. We're going to be introduced to this woman a little bit later. She, he's talking to her about a character, and she says, you're talking like he's... And he goes, that's right, he is. It is so cold in that preview montage to be like, yeah, he's dead. <laughs> and I'm a little like, wow, what a, what a dick. But then when we get to it, Mm -hmm. I don't want to say it's justified, but... Yeah, this episode, one of my takeaways is that thematically, may not thematically, but just uh, in contrast to many Rockford Files episodes, Jim's kind of a jerk in this one. Yeah. And maybe that's because of the uh, the writing team not really knowing the character, which I'll get to in a second, or maybe that's just because uh, there aren't any other supporting characters that we recognize, so... Mm -hmm. I don't know. It's a little weird. I think we'll probably touch on it as we go through the episode. Yeah. Um, to, to set the tone, I think this one doesn't necessarily measure up to some of our other favorite episodes overall. So we'll kind of try and pick out why that is and, you know, the, the interesting reasons for that as opposed to, to slam on it too hard. We do have a one-off writing team of Charles Saylor and Eric Calder credited for this episode you know just a, a little research on on them and not really surprising me after seeing this episode <clears throat> not a far-ranging writing team they had yeah. a couple tv episodes during the 70s that they did together they both individually wrote a couple episodes and they just kind of faded out eric calder does some acting now he's kind of an older character actor or was in the 2000s at least but no stephen cannell no Juanita bartlett uh, yeah. magic on this one Though, fun trivia fact, this one is directed by Jerry London, who directed the very first episode we ever talked about, Tall Woman in Red Wagon. Oh, nice. And we also have a second appearance of a side character whose first appearance was in Charlie Harris at Large. So yes. this is wrapping in well with some of our uh, 
200 a day alumni. 200 a day is supported by all of our listeners, but especially our gumshoes. For this episode, we have seven of them to thank. Thank you, Mike Gillis. Check out his pop culture discussion podcast, Radio vs. the Martians. It's the McLaughlin Group for nerds, RadioVsTheMartians.com. Thank you, Kevin Lovecraft. Find him playing RPGs on the Wednesday Evening Podcast All-Stars. Visit MisdirectedMark.com for that, as well as the other gaming podcasts in the Misdirected Mark Productions Network. Lowell Francis. Check out his award-winning gaming blog, AgeOfRavens.blogspot.com. Thank you to Shane Liebling, Dylan Winslow, and Dale Norwood. And finally, a big thank you to Richard Haddam for his very very generous support. Find him on Twitter at Richard Haddam. If you want to get a shout out for your podcast, blog, or anything else you do, check out patreon.com slash 200 a day and see if you want to be our newest gumshoe. So should we, t- should we talk about those titles? Well, well, we'll go ahead and kick off the action with talking about those titles, which take place during the first scene of a demolition derby. Yes. I was going to say we get off to a pretty exciting start because it's a demolition derby. Mm-hmm. So there are these, you know, trashed up, spray-painted, broken cars, all uh, smashing into each other. But then the titles, whenever a title comes up, just by accident, James Garner, directed by Jerry London, all those, it freezes, and the sound stops. Yeah. And at first, I thought that there was a problem with my playback. Right. On the very first one. (laughs) Yeah, I had the same thing. So it's actually not that exciting. It kind of goes like, uh-uh, uh-uh. There's an unsettling edge in most of this episode that I don't think they lean into. Mm-hmm. It ha- main- has mainly to do with uh, one of these guys in the in the derby here. Um, and, w- and we'll talk more about Dwayne as he evolves here in the story. But some things that he says and he does and how he acts are in line, I think, with this title sequence and some of the musical cues that the rest of the episode ignores. And that, I think, is to its detriment. Yeah, there's one one moment in particular that, that stands out to me in that way that we'll get to later. But here we're introduced to him as one of the derby car drivers, so Dwayne. Um, and then the other major one is Billy Joe Hartman. And it's presented to us in the, the announcer voice kind of calling the action yes. that they have a rivalry and this is some kind of, um, they're basically in a duel. Like all the other drivers yeah. aren't as good as they are. Through the course of these choppy credits, uh, we see... That Billy Joe ends up winning the Derby by just smashing the crap out of Dwayne's Dwayne's car. Okay, so here's the thing: when I was a kid, uh, I never got to go to a demolition derby, but you know, you would hear radio announcements for it. Mm-hmm. You would, you know, it's in your head. It's something far more uh, dramatic than than it probably is, and this one fit what it probably was, which is this guy <laughs> just backing into him. Again and again and again until he finally says, okay, I can't get my car started. I'm yeah, done. until the car is broken enough that it no longer runs. And uh, I'm sure that that's exactly how it works. And that's exactly the kind of excitement. And it's the sort of thing where if you got into it, you would see nuance there and you would enjoy some parts to it that if you're just a casual observer, you were <laughs> like, well, okay, I guess. <laughs> the appeal is mostly, look at those cars smashed together. Yeah. I think this this episode does a pretty good job of keeping it to the narrative, right? Like, we yeah. don't see a lot of extraneous derby. It's yeah. pretty much just to establish these two characters uh, at the beginning. The two of them have a good sportsmanship handshake hug. Oh, yeah. After the, the bout is over, for lack of a better term. As they're walking out of the the arena, I guess. I'm just going to use the wrestling terms. <laughs> 
the track. I, I am able to interpret this all of this through wrestling, right? Because you mm-hmm. have the announcer who says that they have this big rivalry, but then they the guy who loses holds up the hand to the guy who wins, and you're like, oh, obviously that was a masterpiece because that's mm-hmm. what you do at the end of a really good match if you yeah. have a rivalry, you know. You really got me this time. Yeah, you begrudgingly say, yes, you're the champ. Exactly. So if I use wrestling-related terms, it's because that's the, the lens through which I view any <laughs> any sport that happens inside a, a circle of benches. Right. <laughs> but yes, as they're leaving, they have a shady conversation. Billy Joe says that he's starting a new career as, as a racer, getting to the, the stock car circuit. Yeah. And so it's going to be the last time whatever they're doing tonight, this mysterious errand, is going to be the last time for him. Dwayne, you can see in his face, clearly is not okay with this. But no. it's kind of like, yeah, yeah, okay, we'll, we'll just get through tonight. And... Yeah, there, there's a sinister note to Dwayne that gets more and more sinister as the episode goes along. And there's this character of Billy is really affable. Mm-hmm. You kind of feel like if you're going to do anything to Billy, you have to be a real dick, right? Yeah. Like, I, I want to be Billy's friend. Mm-hmm. He is clearly the baby face in this situation. Yeah. <laughs> and Dwayne is the heel. Yes. So we cut to that night. Dwayne is driving a car to a deserted road in an incredible jacket. Yeah. Leather jacket with the little stripes and stuff. Oh, it's fantastic. Uh, and we see him carefully cut a line that, that makes the fuel gauge read down to zero. Right. So he's up to some shenanigans. Billy Joe pulls up behind him in a different car. It's apparently his turn for whatever is about to happen. And he confirms with Dwayne that there's no gas in the car. I was like, okay, so this is some kind of car crash fraud deal that they're doing. The two things we know about them is that they're up to no good and they know how to crash cars. Right. Yeah, they kind of talk to each other in order to tell the audience that there needs to not be any gas in the car because it's supposed to go off the road and look like it got ran off the road. They'll be able to walk away if there's an empty gas tank. But of course, Dwayne has fixed it so that Billy Joe does not know that there's gas in the tank. And then Dwayne proceeds to ram Billy Joe off of the road prior to when he expected to be run off. The car goes down too hard, too fast, rolls over a couple times, and then explodes. There's a musical note in here. So the soundtrack uh, has this very eerie yeah. thing going on that it then shifts into a harmonica when the action gets... This is, I mean, I feel like this is a microcosm of one of the difficulties that this episode had, was that I think they want Dwayne to be more sinister so they, you know, you put the soundtrack in like that, but then you cut it back into... But they have to keep the signature harmonica. Yeah, and it, it just doesn't, it doesn't quite work. You know, you're unsettled for mm-hmm. a moment, and then you're like, oh good, it's a Rockford episode. Yeah, unlike probably the darkest one we've talked about, which was uh, Sleight of Hand, which really leans into being unsettling and dark. This one kind of is like... Yeah, there's some stuff, but we all know that it's just a Rockford episode, so we're not going to go too far with it. After the explosion, we go to a nice-looking house where Jim is being let in to see a woman who turns out to be Billy Joe's mother, Mrs. Louise Hartman. Mm -hmm. Uh, She's been trying to reach Rockford. He was off fishing with with Rocky, which is uh, the only reference to Rocky. We do not see him in the episode, but he is credited, I suppose, as he is mentioned in this conversation. Jim and... Mrs. Hartman have this hug that clearly shows that they know each other. Yeah. Uh, Jim is coming in as a friend already established. Uh, He's not just been called in cold for this case. Right. 
Mrs. Hartman does not think that Billy Joe's death was an accident. Someone saw the explosion. They called the police. They, you know, did their investigation, concluded that it was an accident. He just drove off the road. Case closed. Mm -hmm. She doesn't think it was an accident, not only because he's a professional driver and he wasn't drunk. He didn't have anything in his system because they did an autopsy. She's incredulous that he could have made that kind of error just driving. But she has received in the mail a life insurance benefit of $200,000 that she didn't know he had taken out. That's a million dollars. That's that's what that is. That's a, <laughs> a million $2,017. It's not a tiny amount. It's not... Yeah, it's pretty significant. And Jim illustrates that by wondering how a demolition derby driver, I guess they're called drivers. <laughs> I don't know why I always struggling for that word. Yeah. If anyone out there is a race aficionado, we apologize for the slaughtering we're going to do yeah. of <laughs> racing stuff. Uh, we are not well versed in that. But if you want to give us any tips or, or clarify anything for us, let us know. Yeah. So yeah, Jim, Jim points out that it's, it's not the amount of money that would make sense. Right. There is, as we'll find out, there is a, a class divide between Billy Joe and his fellow uh, derby drivers because he's from this family and this is a wealthy family. We're inside a wealthy home. Right. In addition to the mysterious life insurance policy, uh, it's not like they were close. He left six months ago. Yeah. For this very reason, basically, he wanted to make it on his own without leaning on his family, which is so he kind of cut off contact and just pieced out. So she hasn't talked to her son in six months. Then he dies. Then out of the blue, she receives this $200,000 benefit that she didn't know existed. So she thinks something suspicious, obviously. She offers to hire Rockford at his normal rate, which he kind of downplays. Is like, no, no, no. And then she insists. Goddamn Rockford. Which we'll come back to at the end. (laughs) But this is one of the things that I found most interesting about this episode was this relationship, this Rockford-Mrs. Hartman relationship Mm -hmm. that's kind of implying that they have a pretty close one. They're good friends. Maybe they were together at some point. Yeah, it's... it's... That's kind of implied at the very end. She doesn't appear in any other episodes. This is a one-off character. But yeah, it's an interesting little wrinkle. Now that I'm thinking about it, this is important to pay off what happens with its car at the end, I guess. Yeah, I think so. One of the the things about this relationship that I, I really dig is that it's it gets to be the twist on Rockford's refusing to do work. Right. He's not turning down the job. He can't do that. It's a friend uh, who's in need. So he turns down the money. Right. He He turns down whatever he can. Yeah. She hands him an envelope of money and he just, as soon as her back is turned, sets it down on the desk and leaves it there. So they go to Billy Joe's room, which uh, is covered in racing posters, which are amazing, and I'll get to in a second. But the important thing here is that there are some magazines. He hasn't been receiving them since he left, but the subscription is still good. So Rockford does a quick little phone call to the magazine publisher claiming to be from the publisher's office, and he needs to make sure that a good friend of his is receiving his magazines. So he's able to get Billy Joe's current address, which he apparently has very responsibly updated his address to continue receiving his magazine subscriptions, yeah. uh, which is another point in favor of Billy Joe not being a bad guy. This is a classic uh, Rockford con saying that he's got pressure from authority and he's got a time pressure. 
Mm-hmm. The the dual pincers of a Rockford con. Right. The the call center operator who answers the phone ends up helping him out by just giving him the information he wants, rather than make his day worse by making him wait. Also with the implied threat from authority. Yeah. You know, you don't want me to be the one that I tell the editor didn't give me the information. Right. Before we move on, I do want to mention something that was intriguing to me about these posters in this room. They're all oh, yeah. promotional posters for racing and driving events, and they're very cool. Uh, they're very visually striking. So I was like, oh, I wonder if these were real things. So again, racing aficionados, you can laugh at, laugh at us for our ignorance, but uh, <laughs> turns out the USAC Midget Championship is indeed a class of race. Uh, midget cars is a thing. I did not know this. Mm-hmm. Just tiny little cars? They're just tiny little cars. They're little four-cylinder cars nice that do not weigh very much and have very powerful engines nice so perhaps uh not the greatest term for them but it's what they've been called since the early 20th century and i guess that's just what the classification is called uh still both of these are still happening today but yeah the so that championship circuit and also there's a rad poster for the suicide stock car figure eight (laughs) Yes. Figure eight racing is also a thing where there's a cross in the middle of the track so that you are watching on tenterhooks to see if the cars are going to crash into each other. As as it looks to me on my internet research uh, is often in the same kind of circuit as Derby, as Demolition Derby yeah. and other destructive kinds of uh, car race things to get, get all the crashes and oohs and ahs in there. It is interesting to see that such track design exists outside of mario kart there's there's still one in indianapolis that's like the first one that was built uh and then there's a bunch of them in different places across the country and the world so there's some fun uh fringe racing topics and also i just appreciated that the set decorators were like let's find some cool racing posters or make them and put them in this guy's room yeah but back to our episode Rockford goes to the apartment that he discovered from his uh, magazine conversation. And the name on the bell is Jeannie Zimzik. Yeah. This is going to come back a couple times. <laughs> this was another weird note to me. There's a lot of strange racial humor in this one. Like right. jokes based on people's ethnicities that I don't think have aged very well if they were even appropriate at the time. But so this is a Polish last name. Uh, it's spelled S-Z-Y-M-C-Z-Y-K. And then there will be a number of, for lack of a better term, gags over people trying to pronounce this name. Right. Uh, but it is uh, Simzik, I believe, is the actual yeah. correct pronunciation. So he, he rings the bell. Uh, this young blonde woman answers his, his entree to talking to her is asking her how to pronounce her name. So gag one, check. She yeah. says Simzik, which is... <laughs> vaguely relevant to something later she says simzik and it's later revealed to be zimzik or something yeah she pronounces it one way that's slightly not the way it's actually pronounced as we learned later i mean given given how bad i am at pronouncing james garner's name (laughs) i am not the expert for this one again if we are butchering polish we apologize We'll try to we'll try to improve. Sorry, Droz. Anyway, he asks her how to pronounce it. They have a little a little laugh, and then she tells him to get out. She doesn't know this guy. He shows her his picture. She's like, "No, I don't know who that is. Good luck finding him." And then shuts the door on the picture in a nice little moment. Tells him to get lost and slams the door. So Rockford then goes to the Atwater General Insurance Company, which is the insurance company that who who is providing that policy. Yeah. The $200,000 check. 
And here he's talking to Julian Crumb. K-R-U-M-B. I think it's K-U-R-B-M. Oh, you're right. The B is silent. Yes, the B is silent. This guy is my favorite uh, side character in, in this episode. Yeah, oh, he's good. Not only is he gregarious and actually funny, like his physical comedy is very good, he's always eating. Mm-hmm. We don't see we don't see Jim eat anything in this episode, but uh, Julie, uh, as he says to, to be called, but Julie's uh, chowing down on a sandwich as Rockford comes into his office and then asks to see the insurance files for this claim. <laughs> so while Julie is getting them, he gets some of his sandwich on it and says, "A little mayonnaise never hurt nothing." <laughs> yeah, and we get a great James Garner eye roll. Yes. So he can't just give him the file because co- confidentiality, but he can tell him what's in it, which I guess is a thing. And sure enough, Billy Joe, he took out a $100,000 policy like four months yeah. ago, but it has a double indemnity clause for accidents. So since this was an accident, there's your $200,000 payout. He paid his premium in advance, which is specified to be $2,708, which is a lot yeah. of money to pay in advance. Rockford being a smart investigator asks if there's a, a contingent beneficiary. So mm-hmm. if something, so if his mom is no longer alive, who would it go to? And sure enough, Jeannie Zimzik is <laughs> the contingent beneficiary. And then we get into another last name gag. Yeah. Where Julie's like, well, it's actually not pronounced Zimzik. It's pronounced Simzik. <laughs> That's a nor. It's like Smith where I'm from. Yeah. Those wacky Eastern European last names, Waka Waka. Rockford goes back to Genie's, um, and this is where we get the little scene from the preview montage. He says again, are you sure you don't know this guy? She right. says no. He's like, well, then why are you a beneficiary of his life insurance policy? Yeah. And she's like, oh, Billy Joe, is he? That's right. He is. So in context, you thought that this was not as cold? Well, I mean, it is cold. It's just cold, but... They've established an antagonistic relationship between him and her the first time they met, right? Mm-hmm. She tells him to get lost and slams the door in his face. The moment she sh- shows emotion, he does warm to her and become right. like comforting. And so I do think the delivery is a dick move, but I also think that he might not be having it. There's also the very next scene, because she lets him in and he... Mm-hmm. And she lets him go through uh, Billy Joe's stuff. And she right. goes in the room with him. And that body language is the weirdest I've ever... Like it's, it's very strange. Because I look for this now because of you. He did the, like, arm hold. Yeah. Like, when he came in to, like, comfort her. He's, like, holding onto her arm in that... The Rockford way. That's, like, his possessive arm, gra- arm grab. As opposed to his comforting arm grab. <laughs> Yeah, and then she like does this weird standing in the middle of the room and pointing at things. It's very uncomfortable, yeah. and I don't know if it's character driven or if it's just the staging is weird. Yeah, but yeah, she she allows him in to look through his stuff. While he's looking through his stuff, uh, he palms a checkbook that was in the bottom of one of his drawers. And during this whole thing, they're they're talking. She's kind of giving him the story, but she's looking away from him while she's talking. It's all, her body language is almost like they're in the same room. And Rockford has to change his outfits. So mm, she's giving mm-hmm. him privacy. Right. So she's looking the other direction and talking. And it's it's weird. Yeah, she's very uncomfortable. And you can read it a couple of ways. One is she's distraught because she just learned that her boyfriend, as we learn, yeah. who's been living with her, he, he left 
like a week ago, he was going to go bid on some racing motors or something, and she didn't expect him back yet. And so this is the first she's heard that he died. So, you know, she's emotional, she's distraught, etc. As we learn in the next scene, maybe, though, it's just because she's uncomfortable and it's an act. She says that Billy Joe asked her not to tell anyone that he was living there because of his family. And his, his he didn't want to be part of the wealthy, like, yeah. kind of elite. He wanted to live his own life and he's going to have problems with his mom. And that's why he didn't register anything in his name and uh, why she didn't tell anyone about him. Rockford kind of absorbs the information, palms that checkbook. We end on a final Simzik last name gag again, yeah. and then Rockford leaves. Obviously, the gag is meant to let us know that Rockford is suspicious about her and her right. last name. Because she's pronouncing it differently than how the uh, the insurance guy... Julie Crumb. How Julie pronounced it, and he has authenticity because he, he's from there, or his family's from right. there, quotes. So, yeah. Uh, again, like, in the moment, kind of like, okay, kind of an unnecessary bit yeah personally but i'm just kind of calling him out as we hit him it's an awkward set of clues from the get-go when he the first thing he does when she comes to the door the first time is say how and she's like how what and he's how do you pronounce that name and it's that's not the jim rockford i know the jim rockford i know is smooth and that's like a, a 17 year old boy who has sat outside that door for 20 minutes practicing how he's going to greet her (laughs) yeah yeah it's weird so every part of this clue train has been a little off and and, you know and it doesn't pay off in the end yeah like he doesn't need this clue in the end as we as we find out he is on to something but there's no truth to that like people with the same spelling pronounce their last names differently Right. All over America. I mean, like, if you're listening from someplace that isn't America, we will mess up any last name and then <laughs> just pass it on for generation. Mm. That's a tradition here. That's how we do. Yeah. So, it, anyways. Yeah, I think we don't need to go into this again, but we'll be hearing this this name gag more. So, just yeah. fair warning. Our next scene, though, is Jeannie on the phone. Clearly, she uh, is in, in on something. Says this, this private eye, Rockford was here he was asking questions about billy joe and she doesn't want she wants out she doesn't want to be part of this anymore whatever this is she does say that the deal was 50 a night for however long it took and it took three months yeah so kind of implying that she's she was on some kind of assignment yeah this feels a bit like prostitution yeah she makes far less than rockford at 50 Mm -hmm. a night there's a huge wage gap there yeah She's fed up with her with her name and all the Polish jokes, so there's a bit of self-awareness there, I guess. Yeah. And she wants that new ID. Mm-hmm. So Jeannie is now officially in on it, whatever it happens to be. Um, Rockford has some, some calls to make, so he makes them from a gas station with a great display of uh, tire bargains in the background. Yeah. <laughs> He's just calling to see what what's up with uh, billy joe's checking account so he's calling pretending that he has a check he wants to make sure it's good before he cashes it and not only is the thousand dollar check good that he claims to have billy joe's account is part of the executive depositors club yes which uh includes a bunch of like free checking and whatever but more importantly to our story a safety deposit box and also a special gift and when (laughs) rockford asks what's the gift she responds with Oh, it's a toaster. And he says, I already have a toaster. 
<laughs> this connects back to a conversation that we had about toasters. Right. As we're speaking right now, pretty sure it's in the Farnsworth Stratagem episode. Yeah. We had a theory that Rockford only gets his appliances from signing up for things where he gets them as a special gift. Yeah. So I like that we have incorporated this this bit where he already has a toaster, so he doesn't know, need the gift, back into the uh, Rockford Appliance canon. More evidence to support our, our fan theory here. There's also a bit that goes on here with the gas station attendant, mm-hmm. where it's a full-service station, and the attendant goes to fill the car, and Rockford shouts out of the payphone, fill it up, Ethel. And the gas station attendant says, my name's not Ethel. <laughs> And then Rockford goes, oh, right, gas station humor. Right, yeah. A couple things about this. For anybody who's listening to this five years after we have actually recorded this, a payphone is... (laughs) (laughs) People didn't always have cell phones, and so they would have to use phones that were connected to the ground through a pole. (laughs) Okay, so cars used to run on fossil fuels. (laughs) Let's get back to the episode, shall we? Yes, So this next scene, I will summarize briefly and then say why I think it's weird, and then I think we can move on. Yeah. Rockford goes to to see Mrs. Hartman to tell her about this account and that there's a safe deposit box. But do they go to her house? No, no. He goes to this construction site where apparently she owns a construction company or is the foreman. She's yelling at... She's yelling at, at a guy about his people, but in another ethnic stereotype bit that has not aged well the guy uh is uh, a native american they're the he's a mm-hmm. seneca and they're known for being the the best high high steel workers which is a thing yeah the workers for big buildings construction like skyscrapers and stuff the the guys at the time who were willing to go up and go out on the girders and do the welding as it's being constructed were extremely highly paid. It was very dangerous. I believe that that was a thing that like yeah. that Native Americans were, for whatever reason, kind of stereotypically good at that. Um, however, in this uh, uh, gag, I guess, she's dressing him down for his guys being drunk and not being up to their capacity come Monday. She pays them the most, so she expects the most of them. Get your guys in line. And then he leaves. It's a cautionary tale to writers about uh, what might happen when two gentlemen 40 years later try to talk about your episode. It has not aged well. It's, uh, it's pretty tough. And again, it's not important to the story. It paints her in a really horrible light. I don't know Mm -hmm. if that's what they were doing. I don't think so. I think she's meant to be like, look at this woman. Not only is she like rich, she's rich because she owns this company or whatever, where she's like directly involved. Like, I think she's meant to look, look like a responsible. This, this will tie into the weirdness at the very end too. I think we'll, we'll we'll get to that too. Oh God. Anyway, this doesn't have anything to do with anything else in the episode. It's just a, a bit and it is not good. This whole 45 second scene could have just been been cut without losing anything of importance from this episode because we go from here just to uh opening the safety deposit box so yeah the safety deposit box has twenty thousand dollars in cash which the bank needs to keep Mm -hmm. uh and also an envelope with a return address of a different insurance agency than the one we've already seen and four different driver's licenses with four different names that all have billy joe's picture on them yeah dun 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 (laughs) the plot thickens there's a little gag of like the, the woman from the bank needs to sign out everything. That's a personal yeah. effect. So she looks at them and goes, what would he need four licenses for? Waka waka. It's, it, yeah. 
<laughs> I'll have more to say. I, I'm gonna. I'm saving everything about the humor of the episode for one chunk at the end. I yeah. think because it sounds good. It, there's really only one thing to say. And I don't need to say it over and over. Yeah. Except just pointing out these gags is to reinforce what I'm going to say later. From here, Rockford finally goes to the police to talk to. No, no, not our friend Dennis Becker. No. Sorry, Dennis fans. This is the reappearance of Sergeant or Lieutenant, as he's called later in the episode, Tom Garvey, who 200 a day fans might remember from Charlie Harris at large. He was the detective that was coming down hard on Rockford. Which is the opposite of what he's about to do here. 100% the opposite. He seems to love Jim Rockford. Yeah. Rockford asks him to check out these driver license ID numbers, so he doesn't give him the licenses. He kind of strings him along a little bit. He just says, check these names and numbers. You'll find something interesting. You should get photocopies of them also. Uh, Rockford is, he would be the kind of guy you would send, send to, let me Google that for you. Yes. If you were a cop nowadays, uh, he, he often comes to the cops. Something fishy is going on, and there's reason to involve the police. But he's also using the police to do research that he needs to get done. And Tom plays into this uh, so willingly. Mm-hmm. But he does have a great line here. There's a moment where I think Rockford said, do something for an old friend. And he's like, you haven't got an old friend. <laughs> <laughs> I do like the idea that there are multiple people at the police that have a good relationship with Rockford, yeah. but uh, after this, you know, it's it's Becker pretty yeah. much for the rest of the of the series. We never see this guy again. Poor Tom. Uh, that's all right. He did okay. the The actor was in tons of stuff. He played lots of TV doctors. Oh, he was in the practice around this time. He was in ER in the nineties. He was on Baywatch in a recurring role as a trauma surgeon. Well, according to IMDb, so good for Tom. We'll we'll see how his investigation goes later. But now Rockford is continuing his end. He goes to the Springfield York Insurance Company, which is the one that had the the, the return address of those uh, phony licenses. He says he's from another insurance broker, but he makes sure to drop his actual name of Rockford. And so when the uh, the secretary calls in to see if uh, Mister Springfield will see him, sure enough, he comes right out but he does claim not to recognize any of the names not to know why he would have their insurance company and his you know letterhead in his uh safety deposit box millions of those go out as bulk mail could have gotten it anywhere sorry i can't help you there's an interesting move that rockford does here where he claims to be from the insurance company and then the moment springfield holds him to that he's like no i'm, I'm a private investigator mm-hmm. and it was a legitimate you know like because an insurance company would employ a private investigator from time to time so it was just interesting to me because i'd not seen him do that before yeah it was kind of like the minimum of what he needed yeah all he actually wanted to do was talk to Mr. Springfield. He didn't have yeah. a con to run on him. He right. just needed something to get him in the door. As we know, however, rarely is someone going to be introduced halfway through the episode that is not the bad guy. So <laughs> continuing on to the end of that conversation, Springfield goes back into his office and Dwayne is there running down uh, what sounds like another car crash insurance scam with a crew of ne'er-do-wells who all have, uh, who are all checking in with their, their fake IDs that they have. And this crew, uh, rather than being accomplished car drivers, I assume they're closer to the kind of crew that Rockford would have Angel put together for him. <laughs> yeah, one of the guys has already forgotten his, his fake name. Yeah. And so Dwayne's like, no, this is your name. You need to remember that. So we clearly see that there's an organized scam yeah. that is operating out of the Springfield York Insurance Company. And Mr. Springfield is in charge. He's like deeply involved. Yeah. 
They all leave, uh, and Springfield tells Dwayne that this, this P.I. Rockford is sniffing around the, the Billy Joe thing. Uh, he wants Dwayne to make sure Mr. Rockford has a very real accident. Yes, and that, I believe, is in our preview montage as well. What's not in our preview montage is the slow zoom into <sighs> Dwayne's face. Right. And with the weird music, like the music kind of changes. Yeah. I read that as him being uncomfortable with being told to kill Rockford. But I think my takeaway from Dwayne here is that they that he is a burgeoning serial killer. <laughs> the musical cues and the camera work around him alone yeah. all point to this. And there, there's a line that he has a little bit later on that I think just seals the deal for me. Mm. But again, they don't really lean into it. So it just seems a little weird. There's no button on it. It's all kind of heavily implied, but then backed off in the last second, which is why I was a little confused. And I'll explain why as we go through the next scene, which yeah. is that uh, Rockford goes back to his trailer. Uh, the only trailer appearance in this episode. Uh, he doesn't even get inside before Wayne comes out of the darkness and hits him in the head and throws him back into his own uh, his own firebird and drives away. Go up to a deserted road somewhere where Wayne arranges Rockford behind the, the wheel, puts it in neutral, and uh, pushes the car off the, the edge of the road down the rocky slope. And we don't see, we see it go over, and then we hear it as it kind of crashes down things as we watch Wayne. Yeah. Wayne then calls Mr. Springfield to say that it's done and it was beautiful. Yeah, that's exactly it. Like, I think that that's the moment that we're supposed to go, uh oh, a murderer is born. He's right. already killed and killed a good friend, but he's, he's relishing it in a way that, that is, uh, had I been watching this episode for the first time, and paying attention the way we do now for the podcast, I may have thought that this would end with him getting out of control. Yeah. That uh, Har uh, Springfield would be... Like the next target or something. But it, it kind of ends here. Yeah, I feel like that would be a more interesting episode, honestly. Yeah. Because for me, what's weird here... So there's this moment, and you're like, wow, this guy's really messed up. Yeah. But then the next scene is we see Rockford in the hospital... He's not okay. He's all banged up. He has bandages. And the doctor does make a point to say, you were really lucky you should have died. But also, like... A very judgy doctor. Yes. But, like, this burgeoning psychopath didn't go check. Right. Yeah. The episode kind of backs off him being all in on this character as a cold-blooded murdering psycho. And kind of is like, well, he pushed him off the thing and... He assumed he was dead, and that's not going to create any problems for them down the road. Car safety features have improved quite a bit over the past 40 years, mm -hmm. but I still wouldn't think that you would assume a car going over the edge meant that whoever was in the car was just straight up dead. Right, because we don't see it explode like we did with the first one, which is t TV signifier for this person is dead. With the Even with the first one, when I was watching that happen, while I was watching him ram it, this this part feeds more into the... What is Dwayne becoming? He sends him over the edge. And I remember thinking, what if you don't kill him doing that? Yeah, what's the what's plan B? Are you going to go up to your friend and make sure that he's dead up close? Rather than, mm -hmm. you know, and it's not a very reliable way to kill a person. And that he would get it wrong this time. Mm -hmm. And of course, he's also a derby driver, right? He knows the cars get hit and people... So, anyways... That's the last real serious Wayne moment, but yeah, it's part of the kind of like, if this was a little more committed, it probably would have right. 
it would have held together in a more interesting way for me. That said, uh, we do have Rockford in the hospital with a head wound, which is, again, uh, (laughs) from Tall Woman in Red Wagon. He starts and ends with a head wound. So director Jerry London just likes these head wound episodes. (laughs) He apparently has a bad hematoma, which is TV speak for a bad head injury. But a hematoma is actually a really serious injury. Well, he's got a Band-Aid on it. Ugh, this doctor. This goddamn doctor. This is the most TV set of the whole Rockford Files. It's weird because it looks like he's in the morgue. Yeah, he looks like he's in the morgue, but there's a desk where the doctor's doing his work. Doing the work for a dead patient and not Rockford. It, it does seem like we need, we just need a way for these guys to have this conversation. Yeah, because, okay, so basically the information the doctor gives him is how bureaucracy works. <laughs> right. <laughs> and this puts uh, Rockford on the scent of going to the uh, Bureau of... Vital Statistics. So, I mean, we could just leave it at that, because that... <laughs> yeah. I mean, the Doctor is kind of like a, a delightful, don't give me your crap, buddy, kind of guy. But but then he takes his crap and lets him go. Like, you should stay for another day. No, I want to leave. Okay, fine, here you go. Yeah. We, we just end with uh, Mrs. Hartman comes in to check on Jim. Because she heard about it on the radio. Because she heard about it on the radio, which apparently no one else in this episode has, which is fine. A little narrative reason for, to get her there. Because now that he doesn't have a car, he needs a ride. Yeah. So she gives him a ride to the mechanic, uh, to Freddy, to find yes. out what, what's up with his car. And uh, as we might expect, the poor the poor Firebird has been totaled. It is not fit to drive. And we have a bit of... Kind of fun banter. Probably the most fun banter in this episode is between Rockford and Freddy. Yeah, people will recognize uh, the actor who played Freddy from his role in um, Conquest of the Planet of the Apes. <laughs> where No, no uh, WKRP in Cincinnati. Uh, he's, the, well, he's the station manager. Recognizable. Gordon Jump. It's going to take a while to fix up the Firebird. Rockford asks for a loner. The only loner on the lot. It's a Buick. It's another bad joke in this. But it's the same color. It's the same color. It has a a white roof. It's yeah. a two-tone. So it's gold on bottom and white on the top instead of being uh, gold all over. But it has a similar profile and is the same color, uh, which leads to our, our final preview montage moment, which we'll get to. Rockford's like, oh, yeah, I'll take that. So it's yeah. like that is a better car than he usually does because it's the, the loner for, uh, you know, his other customers. I have an accounting theory here. Okay. Freddy actually is okay with Rockford doing what he did here because I think Freddy knows that he can sell more and more cars to Rockford. That's true. He's got a really good line on on like a steady annual income from this one man. Yeah, Freddy uh, casts some aspersions on whether Rockford's going to get the car back to him in one piece. Right. And Rockford says, Freddy, you know what kind of driver I am. Rockford goes back to talk to his good friend Tom at the police station, who are moving very slowly and have (laughs) provided the info for the driver's licenses, but not the pictures. Uh, Tom's like, well, I mean, they're all close in height and builds, but that's not weird. Right. Rockford asks, well, what's this mean? And apparently all of them used birth certificates as their proof of ID to get their driver's licenses, which is a little weird. And Tom's kind of like, uh, okay, why do you need to know that? Rockford says, no reason. Also, you should check out Mr. Springfield. He's up to something. Okay, bye. Yep. And Tom's like, okay, Rockford, hearts and eyes. Yeah, he loves Rockford. He's like, whatever you say, which uh, kind of shows how good Dennis is as a character. Yeah. <laughs> how 
Dennis's ingrained put outedness at being asked to do anything, even though they're friends, yeah, makes yeah. those scenes way more compelling than Tom's jocular, oh, you wacky Rockford, you're always asking me for stuff. Well, I'm trying to, no, I'm trying to remember if in the other episode we saw him in, does Rockford land a good case for him? I don't even know if it's intentional, but it could be well explained by saying Rockford is a payday, right? Like the same way that Freddie loves Rockford. Well, if Rockford shows up, I'd get a good case. <laughs> That's definitely possible. That's 100% us reading into it. And yeah, I yeah. would have to listen to that episode or watch that episode again, but I can see that. But yeah, so he dumps some info on Tom, then goes off to the Bureau of Vital Statistics um, to look at the death books for 1945 to 1947. So what he's chasing down is this theory that seems very obvious, but I don't know if that's because it's a trope and thus I've heard it a lot, or I don't know if this idea was as obvious at the time as it seems now. Right. But this idea of he's checking the names against children who died, you know, at a year old or whatever, uh, because there's no cross-reference between the birth certificates and the death certificates. And so that's how you can get a legal government ID to, to make a false identity. I, I have some theories about this scene and the very next one when he's in the pay booth down the hall, the, mm-hmm. the phone booth down the hall, and that there's a lot of research and legwork he has to get across. It's not it's not a ton of information, right? It, the, the information is somebody has been looking at death certificates, of, like you said, mm-hmm. and then ordering their birth certificates, and then he needs to put that together with the insurance policy, which he does in the next scene because he, he calls right. our, our good friend Julie Crumb. Mm-hmm. So that's it. I mean, like we explained that in under 30 seconds, but a, an info dump like that in a television show, particularly kind of a detective-y action show, probably you can't just barf it up. It will feel a little awkward. And you want to kind of see him do the legwork. So what they do here is they give him a bit of business with these two different women. Mm-hmm. to have going on while all this is happening. And the first one, I love. Well, actually, I love them both. I love them yeah. both. But this this woman that works the desk here, like, she takes one look at Rockford, who is all bandaged up, and just has decided, this is a ne'er-do-well. I want nothing to do with him. Gives him a dismissive stare. He asks her information. She's obviously there to answer people's questions about documents. That's why she's there, yeah. She walks him over, and then... He's doing this research, and we're seeing what he's writing down on paper. We're seeing what he's seeing in the book. We even hear some comment. I think he even says bingo. Yeah. And almost all of it is those two glaring at each other. <laughs> it's kind of funny, but it's also twice as long as it has to be. Even right. while holding the same amount of like humor value as it yeah. does. Because yeah. he does everything twice, and I think that's kind of to like make sure that we get it. He looks at a name, he looks at it in the book, he finds it, he cross-references it on his list, he says bingo. Then he does it again with another name. Then he explains the scam to her as he's leaving. <laughs> she's great, because she's just like, like I think a burned-out civil servant would be. Yeah, there's lots of holes. Yeah, <laughs> what do you want me to do? So, I mean, basically... Like, it has, it conveys information, there's great character things going on, there's a lot of fun interaction, but it does lack in pacing, because like you said, it just goes over the information over and over. So it feels to me like the prototype of a good Rockford scene. Yeah, it just needed like one round with whoever being like, cut this out, cut this out, and and then it would have been great. And then the, the next scene goes ahead and does the exact same thing yeah. with a different woman. He he goes to a phone booth and he cuts off this woman who's all like dressed to the nines. Yeah. 
she reaches it right before he does, opens it, and he slides in and says thanks, like she's holding the door for him. Oh, and she says, you're a real gentleman. Right. You jerk. And he responds with, I don't play favorites. I'm liberated. Which right. is the most jerkish. Like, we've talked in other episodes how Rockford has ha- has what seems like a fundamental respect for women. Right. It's very masculine in the way that he evinces it. And it's not, you know, he's not perfect as a character or I'm sure as a, as a person, as an actor. But, like, this is the most jerkish response to a woman that I can re- remember just undeserved in the whole series. This is another thing in this episode. He deals with Jeannie really weirdly uh, and very coldly in in the beginning. He kind of condescends to the woman in the last scene. So I have a weird theory here. Okay. That maybe the writers are a little a little misogynistic. Yeah. We're going to get a joke at the very end, and I'm going to put air quotes around that joke mm-hmm. uh, that I think kind of nails the thesis on this yeah. uh, that we'll get to. Yeah, I think you're probably right. But So what he does here is he calls Crumb to check on these names about whether they have any insurance policies right. on these names. And apparently there's some kind of computerized bank of universal insurance policies that Julie Crumb has access to. He's eating a bagel while this is happening, by the yep. way. <laughs> while he's waiting for Crumb to figure, you know, to get back to him, he's on hold. And this other woman, she she needs the phone immediately because she has a bet that she wants to put on a horse. Right. He asks her what horse, gets all the information about this bet. He goes, oh, that's a pretty good bet. Once he gets the information, and which is that, yes, all of those names had policies with Springfield Insurance. So mm-hmm. sure enough, it's a big insurance scam going on. He hangs up. Then he calls his bookie, I guess, to make a $20 bet <laughs> on this horse he just heard about. The whole time, this woman's walking around the outside, giving him the stink eye, yeah. asking when he's going to be done. He then calls Springfield's office, and the secretary gives him a fake runaround. He's not here. He's yeah. not going to be back. Well, since you asked so nicely, he's going to be at the track today. And then we zoom out, and we see Springfield over our shoulder being like, yes, good job. Yeah, well done. Um, so he's going to be at the racetrack. Rockford's like, okay, great. Hangs up. And sure enough, it's too late for the woman to make her call. Mm-hmm. So she says, well, you know, I hope your bet pays off or whatever. And he thanks her for the tip and then leaves. <laughs> the only thing I have to say about that is that it did the same thing the previous one did, where this woman and the whole betting thing, it was just because he had a series of phone calls to make. And I think they felt like they needed to not just have him on one phone and someone on the other phone. They felt like they needed to have something happening. Which is weird because so many episodes have dynamic phone calls in them. Right. Like, it's something the show does well. Yeah. It's very weird. Also, this bet has nothing to do with anything. We don't hear about it. It doesn't pay off later. I have a big old question mark because if it does pay off, it's... It's six to one. So... He made $120. Yeah. And if it didn't, he lost 20 bucks. Or he, he would have made $100, I guess. Is... I don't know how betting works. Anyways, the point is, <laughs> yeah, it would be the only money he would have made this episode. This woman's only there to give Rockford someone to be mean to. Right. Anyway, moving on. Mr. Springfield scolds Wayne for not killing Rockford, which apparently <laughs> this is the first that Wayne's heard of it. Right. Though Springfield must have heard of it because he instructed his secretary to tell Rockford a certain thing. So maybe right. he heard it on the radio too? Question mark? It could be, yeah. Then they're like, well, we're going to get him this time. And my favorite part of this scene is the amazing tiki mug that 
Springfield is drinking whatever he's drinking out of. Um, all right. Racetrack. Night. Yes. So I guess Rockford waited till night. Maybe it's far away from the city? Could be. Yeah. I mean, if you have a demolition derby, people probably don't live next door to it because it's yeah. probably loud. So Rockford drives into the middle of the demolition derby area in his uh, loner car. Dramatic music begins and we hear dramatic motor starts. Yeah. And then Dwayne and Mr. Springfield both make their presence known in separate uh, derby cars and start trying to run Rockford down because he got out of his car. Then they start trying to run him down. He runs back to his car and then we get the uh, exciting derby fight, which I kind of expected a little more, actually. It quickly just comes to the two bad guys just being on either end of Rockford's car and just smashing into it over and over, crumpling it like a like a soda can. Until until you see gas pouring out of one of them. And we all know what that means. Yep, we do get that nice shot through the windshield of Rockford as he looks horrified as flames start licking up over the the, uh, the hood of the car. Thankfully, we know it's not the Firebird. That was destroyed earlier. Yes. But he manages to bail out the side door and roll away as the car explodes, which kind of takes out all of the cars. Yes. And then everyone's out of their cars. Dwayne takes a gun out. Yeah, upgrading. Starts to take pot shots at Rockford, but thankfully someone thought ahead, and uh, Sergeant Tom and the cops finally arrive. One of them wings Dwayne in the shoulder, it looks like, uh, taking him out of the picture, and then they arrest Springfield and bring everyone in to justice. Yeah. Okay, next scene. (laughs) He uh, Rockford asks Tom what took him so long, because uh, the cops are always just a little bit late. Mm-hmm. Uh, and Tom's like, well, ride with me and fill me in on everything. Because Rockford's like, I'll fill you in if you give me a ride, because one of my attacks is hers. Well, then I won't fill you in. Right. And he's like, oh, oh, okay. I can't resist you, Rockford. Hard eyes, hard eyes. He says, but first we need to go, go to this address and pick up the woman, Julia. She was in on it. Yeah. Also, tying that up, I guess. I think there's a little bit about, like, you're always getting out of trouble. He says, well, you always win, don't you? And he's like, not always. You think it's going to be the end. You think there's going to be a freeze frame there. There isn't. But no. Jim fills in Tom in the car, which is basically just the information we've already seen that Springfield was running a big insurance scam, giving people fake identities. They would construct a car crash and then claim the, um, the insurance policies. And he explains the child who died in their first year don't have any other government identities. So they're the cleanest right. for getting a driver's license that Billy Joe wanted to get out. And so they must've killed him left unclear is how that all benefits Springfield, I guess, but whatever. Yeah. And, and why, why Jeannie? Yeah. She's definitely involved. She's paid to do something. Yeah. And she has a fake ID. Oh, yeah. This was the payoff for the last name thing. Hers was one of the names that was in those death books. Right, yeah. So, like, her ID is also fake, but it kind of doesn't matter. But, yeah, so, you know, case wrapped up. All the bad guys Mm -hmm. have been captured. Insurance scam has been busted. And we go to Rockford's final scene with Mrs. Hartman. She thanks him and, you know, is giving her closure about her son and everything. And this is where she does the bit with the envelope of money. Yeah. You must have lost this or <laughs> left this last time. The maid found it. Here's the money I owe you. He's like, oh, and then redirects the conversation. Like, how is she? She wasn't well. Yeah. And then slyly drops it back on the table, <laughs> not taking the money for the job in the end. God damn you, Jim. But wait, our final scene is back to Freddie. 
mm-hmm. to talk about these cars. Jim Rockford's yellow coat in this scene. I don't know if you remarked yes. on it, but it is a standout piece of fashion. Yeah. So there's a bit of business about your car's wrecked. You wrecked my loner. They they kind of have some laughs, but then Freddie says that it's okay. You're 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 all right. Turns out that uh, the strangely dressed lady. Yeah, he says. This lady, at least I think she's a lady. It was hard to tell by the way she was dressed. Something like that, yeah. Paid for everything. Paid for your car and the loaner. You know, we're all square. Does Jim say or does Freddy say, that lady has style? Yeah, that lady has style. And Jim says something like, she sure does. And then we end with the big freeze frame on uh, the big smile, the big James Garner smile. End of episode. Yeah. I rewound. <laughs> rewound. I, yeah, I skipped back to the last scene with her, Louise Hartman, and she was wearing a dress. So in the construction scene, she's wearing, like, overalls and a hard hat. And I think that that's what that's supposed to be. I think so. But, like, it doesn't read at all. Like, it's a really weird thing for him to go, I think she was a lady. I don't know by the way she was dressed. She wore overalls. poor freddy and his sensibilities this plays into that theory that i have about the writers yeah my my theory i agree with you i think there's some just like casual misogyny and jokes that you know are not great there's some casual racism in the jokes that aren't great and the jokes just aren't funny there's humor in the episode like there are Mm -hmm. moments that are constructed to be humorous but the best episodes, or at least one, the best ones that are meant to be funny, mm-hmm. both have good jokes and good character interactions. Right. There's a whole range of episodes where, like, the jokes are fine, but it's the character an- interactions that really make them sing. Rocky right. is a funny character. Angel is a funny character. Yeah. And then in this one, he didn't have anyone to bounce off of that was actually that funny other than Julie, mm-hmm. which is also played for ethnic humor. Yep. Oh, so I like those scenes because they were amusing, kind of despite themselves to me, yeah. I guess. So, yeah, I just think that this team of writers, just a bad sense of humor that hasn't aged. Yep. Just also plot wise, like it just it's kind of a eh, plot. The villain wasn't particularly villainous. The interesting character is Dwayne. If he was played as darker, would have made this right. a more interesting episode to me. But he's kind of played in the end kind of as a buffoon. One of the things that they don't have here, I'm not going to say that this is a thing that every Rockford episode has, but the, again, the ones that stand out to us often do, is that the the villains have pressures. Yeah. These villains have a scheme. They certainly have a scheme, and there's maybe a hint that some of the people involved in the scheme are no longer want to be involved or are just not competent or whatever. Yeah. But it's not like, well, I mean, to go back to uh, Chicken Little is a Little Chicken, it was that was filled with villains and thugs, and, right. and all of them had these little pressures, and some of them were social pressures, and some of them, and they're just mo- well motivated, uh, aside from just money. And if they'd just done something like that, if they just had Dwayne start to go a little little nuts and or like to... if Dwayne had like a relationship with one of the other characters that wasn't like I'm employed by this man, right? Yeah, yeah. This felt to me very much as as the B team. Yeah, the writers were not regular writers, and I think it showed there weren't any of the regular extras, so Jim didn't have anyone to bounce off of. We had like the secondary cop character, not Dennis. Mm-hmm. The villains were kind of bush league, so we may have hit our first. Yeah, you could skip this one of two hundred a day. We could spend 
maybe we'll spend a portion of the second half running down directions this this episode could have taken. Mm-hmm. You have a demolition derby driver. Yeah. There's this little bit on the inside the demolition derby, but they don't have like him chasing Rockford on the open road. Right. And like that's such a missed opportunity. I th- yeah, I think there are like half a dozen missed opportunities that could have just bumped it up. Yeah. Obviously, some stuff is going to be great and some stuff is not going to be great. That's just yeah. the nature of the beast. While I think there are a lot of things that this makes us think about that are interesting and are able to be pulled out for our own purposes, which we'll talk about in the second half. If you're skimming through season one and you're starting to get to the end and this one comes up, you could safely skip it and not really lose anything of enormous value out of your Rockford Files experience. Yeah, I would agree. Shall we get to our second half then? Sure. We'll see you in the second half. While we have you here, there's three ways you can support us. First, rate and review on iTunes or whatever service you use for podcasts. Second, you can support us directly for as little as $1 an episode at patreon.com slash 200 a day. If you want to help us shape the direction of 200 a day, the Patreon is the best place to go. And finally, both of us have other projects going on pretty much all the time. Epi, what are you excited about right now? I'm excited about swords and sorcery, the type of swords and sorcery you find at worldswithoutmaster.com. And my new project, codename Lincoln Green, Robin Hood role-playing game. You can find all you need to know about that at digathousandholes.com. I'm excited about your stuff as well. Oh, that's so nice. As always, you can check out my catalog of fiction and role-playing games at ndpdesign.com, including the worldwide wrestling role-playing game. If you want to see my newest stuff, check out the playtest page. That's where I have free downloads of all my fun new projects. Thanks yet again for listening. As always, we deeply appreciate your support. And with that, back to the show. Welcome, welcome back to 200 a Day. We uh, just recapped Just by Accident, episode 21 of season one, which uh, I'm, I think it's fair to say neither one of us thought was the best Rockford episode. The baseline is high. Yeah. I still enjoyed watching the episode. Exactly, yeah. But I think, as I said, if you're binging the show and they're starting to blur together... You could skip this one without really losing any iconic Rockford moments that that you might wish you'd seen. It brings to mind a statistical uh, phenomenon. This is a thing that, like the curse of the Wheaties box or the curse of um, Sports Illustrated, where Mm. uh, if somebody gets on the cover of Sports Illustrated or gets on the Wheaties box, then their career kind of takes a nosedive. And they're like, "What, what is this? What's happening? Are these cursed? I've I've heard of the the Sports Illustrated cover thing. What's happening there is you don't get on the cover unless you're doing good. And uh, when you do good in sports, that's often when you're peaking. Mm-hmm. You know, people aren't super excited about this. Nobody who just happened to have a decent season, they're excited about somebody who's at the height of their career. And if you're at the height of your career, the next place to go is down. And that's why that tends mm. to happen is that mm-hmm. you this is it this is your lifetime achievement award. You're on the cover. So, where that plays into what we were just saying is that so much of Rockford is at the peak that some of it has to go somewhere else. Otherwise there's no peak. Otherwise it's just the flat line. And also because we're cherry picking episodes, we're not going in any kind of particular order. Yeah. A lot of our decisions are driven by, I just saw this one and it's great, let's talk about it. Or, I remember this one being great, let's talk about it. Right. And every so often we pick one a, a little more just straight up based on the two-sentence synopsis. I, I see what you're saying. This one's my fault. I own it. <laughs> no, I'm not assigning blame. I mean, I looked at the synopsis and said, 
I agree. I want to see this one that I don't really remember, but I know involves race cars. Yeah. And turns out there are other episodes that involve race cars that are better than this one. Yeah. But we did talk a little bit about ways that uh, this episode does rise to the occasion, or there's Mm -hmm. good things that can be learned from this episode, which we'll talk about now. Right. Just because the episode disappointed us a little bit, that doesn't mean that we can't learn anything from it. Right. In fact, it might mean we can learn a little bit more, because a lot of the time it's just us saying, this was great. As always, this was also great. Uh, (laughs) So in this case, maybe we can tease out a little bit more uh, detail about how to do these things in a particular way that might be better for our goals. So I had one particular thing that I wanted to talk about. So I can I can bring that up now if, if we're ready for it. I'm ready. Uh, I kind of went on in the first half about the two scenes, the back-to-back scenes uh, where he does research and then gets on the phone. Mm-hmm. And in both those scenes, he's playing against a woman who has nothing to do with the plot. It's two different women, but he's, he's has like this sort of business going on with them where, you know, they're giving each other funny looks or they're just playing out a gag while the other thing's going on. I mean, we talked in the first half about how, particularly the first one where he's going through the death certificates and figuring mm-hmm. out the scam. He goes, he does it like a few too many times. It's beaten a little to death there. Right. Uh, and while he's doing it, He's having this interaction with this woman, this uh, disaffected uh, bureaucrat who just doesn't want to be bothered. And I think that that instinct to put that character there uh, and to have something going on while he's doing this is good. You don't want to just have somebody on screen reading a book. This is one way to make the research scene interesting. Right. I mean, like in prose, you can kind of just say, Rockford did this research. This is what he learned. But that's information that may be interesting. But how, how right. do you make that something that's in- engaging to read and that brings you further into the story? Uh, or right. in a game, this is something that comes up a lot, which is how do you handle research? You just do a die roll and move on? Or do you make it some kind of dynamic scene that has a little bit of tension even if the goal of the scene is to get everyone to have this information that they need for the next step. The spoonful of sugar that lets this medicine go down <laughs> is this this sour woman who uh, just doesn't appreciate Rockford, who, we have to add, looks like he just got the kicked out of him, right? Like, he, he shows up in bandages, and, and as someone who has had injuries in the past and has had to go out in public with bandages on his head, uh, I can tell you, that's how people react. They really, they don't want to be reminded of their own mortality by having <laughs> a disheveled human being standing in front of them with a uh, a clear wound. So, yeah, I, I think that, that there's good to be had there. There's, this is something you could do is by putting something else in the scene that the the characters, the players can, can interact with mm-hmm. that is just fun. It's a little bit of a gag. It's something that they could do that's not just the information dump. Right. So if you're doing it in a game, you could be like, here's your interaction. This is what you learned. Yeah. Uh, what both of these scenes, like the tool by which both of these scenes achieve that is by putting a character in for Rockford to interact with. Right. And I think that's a pretty good takeaway, uh, which sounds obvious when you say it, but I think is is one of those. If you don't think about it, maybe you won't think about it kind of things. Right. If Rockford has another person to interact with, then that research can be in the context of the interaction, not in the context of Rockford and the viewer. 
Right. Yeah, he's not struggling with the book. Exactly. Yeah, he's not flipping through pages and frantically trying to, to beat some deadline or something, which is another method to do this, right? Like, if Rockford had to find this information, but someone's after him and he needs to find it before they break down the door, which is something right. that happens in other episodes. Yeah. That's a different way to make this an interesting scene, because we're, 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 we're waiting to see if Rockford can do it in time. And again, the information is both necessary to keep the plot moving and also kind of by the wayside of what the tension of the scene is. And it's kind of interesting to think about this in contrast with how it might otherwise be presented. Let's say we didn't add, add this woman. We didn't have someone for Rockford to play off of. The, then that scene may have been done in montage, right? Right. Like you would just have him going through and then explaining to someone what he discovered mm -hmm. uh, or making it obvious in what's uh, written in front of him. They had him do his notes uh, and they did have this moment where he looked up Genie Simzik. And I mean, that's a great moment where he, he puts the, the book, almost puts the book back and is like, wait a minute, this ends in the Z's or the S's, you know, yeah. this is the S to Z. Wait, what? let me just check that one. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I have a hunch. Let me see. Right. And then he, he gets it and he writes her name down so that the audience is like, oh, right, that's what he's learning. Mm -hmm. And and I'm going to use this as a launching point because there's something interesting here because this, that's good and that's great. It would have been nice if the Genie Simzik storyline meant anything to the storyline. Right, <laughs> exactly. At this point, if he never found out anything about her... It wouldn't matter. Like, yeah. presumably the cops would have figured it out, but it doesn't, you know, like, she's, mm -hmm. she was either a vector for offering clues about Billy Joe or, like, something to get in the way while he's trying to search out clues for Billy Joe, but they kept putting her in more without explaining. Maybe, maybe I'm, I'm too critical of this, but like, I, like, it, I agree that it's, I think I, I mentioned how her story overall, but this particular clue about her name never pays yeah. off. And that's right. why, because it never, there's no reason for it to matter. We have all this business and all these kind of bad ethnic jokes about her name. And then we learn that she's in on the conspiracy, whatever the conspiracy is. But then once we learn that fact, she she's out of the episode. And it doesn't yeah. matter that she was in on the conspiracy. Fundamentally, I mean, there's a lot of things we could talk about. Like, the, definitely this whole episode could be tightened up a little bit. But I think fundamentally, and you hit upon it uh, in the first half, is that the, the villains just aren't inspiring. Any one of these bits could be tied in in an interesting way, right? You, so let's take, let's say we have this episode before us. Mm -hmm. uh, either we get to doctor it, or maybe we're using it as a plot for a game that we're going to run, or something like that. But let's let's talk about how we would fix this. Yes. So this is we're going to go ahead and fantasy book. Yeah. <laughs> how this episode could have gone, I think, for, for our preferences. and Now, fantasy book, that's wrestle fan terminology, right? Yes. And this actually is, I think, an important nuance to that phrase, which is we're going to take these characters as established. Yes. We're treating Jim Rockford like Jim Rockford as we know him from the rest of the show. Right. But we are going to, as opposed to what the writers have done and put him into this set of plots, we're going to go ahead and fantasize how we would take the plot threads put before us and combine them without abandoning the character that we know. So I'll just, yeah, put a, a button on that as, you know, booking is just the wrestling term for writing, writing storylines. Yeah. So. Well, there's three big opportunities that I would try to take advantage of if I was taking mm -hmm. the premise of this episode and then kind of tuning it, right? Yeah. One is 
that the insurance scam is not particularly interesting in and of itself. Mm -hmm. It's the mechanism, right? It's it's what's happening, but the why of it is kind of vague to make money, question mark, which, while a perfectly valid real-world motivation, is kind of simplistic for the Rockford Files. Or may not simplistic, but is kind of not necessarily enough to keep everything mm-hmm. in motion in the absence of another driving motivation and which there is said absence. So what's another motivation for Mr. Springfield to be making this insurance scam happen? Right, right. So that would be my first big question. Like, what are the pressures on Mr. Springfield that are motivating him to create right. the scam? There's a little bit in this episode about it being a good scam. Mm-hmm. But Rockford figures it out and they even have that line like, oh, you must be a genius sarcastically delivered and then he in in kind of a good good rockford moment he's like no nah, i don't think do you think <laughs> yeah that is a good moment so it's okay if the this villain is just motivated by greed if we see see that he's like oh this is a brilliant plot mm-hmm. that nobody will catch if we at, see right? the greed like, also we don't really see him being greedy we just see that he's a corporate kind of guy and he drinks out of a tiki mug if we saw him just being a cog in the insurance machine who figured this out Mm -hmm. and then is implementing it i think that that would be more interesting Mm -hmm. because we don't even know if he just created a fake company and right yeah yeah go on i i got my fantasy booking and maybe i'm leaning towards it so let's hear yours and then i'll do mine (laughs) i think the setup is good in terms of how Rockford gets drawn in, right? Like, I don't think you need mm-hmm. anything else there. One classic Rockford move is that it's a mob thing. He's either in in with the mob or that he's being used as a, you know, as a cog, you know, because right. he owes someone money or, or whatever. Yeah. But I like the idea that he's not the boss, that he's a functionary that's figured this out. And maybe he's like, I'm going to go ahead and enrich myself just by taking advantage of all these loopholes. The second big opportunity here, and we talked about this a decent amount in the first half, is Dwayne and how yeah. we kind of see him developing into this fractured psychopath, but then not really. Pushing him further that way would make him more villainous, right? If he was a mm-hmm. cold-hearted killer and we see him turning into that because he ends up having to kill his friend that he was working with. Right. And that's what pushes him over the edge. That, of course, would require something, some way that Rockford gets out of being killed that's not Dwayne just walks away and doesn't check. That turns into a car chase where where Rockford oh, that would be horrible. escapes. <laughs> but crashes the car in so escaping, something like that, I think would still be in keeping with, with how the plot's progressing. And we also see Dwayne maybe like running other people off the road or like pulling out a gun, but then there's cops and he has to leave, like something that makes him yeah. more villainous. Uh, that I think also would be shifting the focus to, to like Dwayne being the real villain here and not Springfield. Um, right. But. Like many episodes, the boss could be kind of a minor character that just shows up at the end to provide justification for why Dwayne was after Rockford, right? And then finally, the most interesting thing that I think this episode could do is take Jeannie and have a dedicated Jeannie, Billy, Joe, Dwayne triangle that is at the heart of why Billy Joe gets murdered, why... Jeannie lies to Rockford, and then maybe she, you know, tries to leave, but Dwayne won't let her leave. Right. So then there's a tension there, and then Rockford can do his Rockford thing where he starts being protective of someone in trouble with Jeannie, and that's why Dwayne's after him personally, and not just to cover the scam. 
that seems like a natural place for this kind of plot to resolve for for me. I'm all on board for all of that, and I can I will I will tell you why. I do. I also think that that this episode would be more interesting if it sort of had this Dwayne transformation going on in it. Uh, I think that one of the interesting things that can be done with that is to put pressure on Springfield. The two interesting things that can happen there at the end is you can have Dwayne be more bloodthirsty than Springfield's prepared for. Right. Uh, and then Springfield is afraid and might have to do something about Dwayne. And then you have a nice three-way entanglement at the end that can all take place in cars. Right. <laughs> then we take the pressure off of having to have Springfield be at all interesting because he's then just the pressure for Dwayne, right? Like the, mm -hmm. he could just be, like you said, like mobbed up or something. And we don't really even need to have him in any kind of sympathetic situation where we're trying to figure out why he's doing this. And I agree with the genie thing because there's, something about the character of Billy Joe that still needs to be explained. Right. Because he leaves his wealthy family because he doesn't want to be a construction tycoon, you know, whatever. He wants to race cars. So he gets a job at the Demolition Derby because he doesn't have a name for himself. That's what he, mm -hmm. you know, he, the, the show has defined that as the lowest rung of his ladder. He has higher aspirations than the Demolition Derby. But that doesn't explain why he gets embroiled in this insurance scam. Right. If he's, if he wants money and he's, he doesn't have like a scruple, he can get it from his family somehow. Why is it that chasing the dream of being a race car driver is worth this insurance scam? And I'm not saying that that's not possible. I'm not saying it's unrealistic. I'm saying we need to know as the audience. We need that part of the story. And I think Genie's probably vital to that part of the story. I think Dwayne and Genie get him on board because... They they need another, like, driver who can pull off these scams without actually killing himself. Right, yeah. So that's how Genie gets involved. She's up to her eyeballs in all of it. And that's a perfect moment for, like you said, to have Rockford come in and not necessarily just be like, I'm going to save you, young woman, although that is definitely Rockford's thing. Yeah. But to see him hold sympathy for somebody who wouldn't otherwise be worth having sympathy, which is something that Rockford does, mm -hmm. you know, often. It just plays to his character kind of... like We both comment how this episode, he's kind of a dick throughout yeah. it. So, yeah, I think that I, I agree with you. I love your fantasy book. <laughs> <laughs> I don't even think there's a whole lot of changes that have to happen in the episode right. to make that happen. And you there's certainly places we can point out where you can find room to make that happen. Yeah, I think you take it as, like, this is a great technique for games in particular, is, like, to take the premise, take the elements as presented for, like, the first third to half of the episode. They're all the same. Yeah. Your, your scam, whatever the actual details are, one of the people in it is betrayed by another one and murdered, but he left this money to his family, and that's what brings in our heroes or whatever. That's a good framework. But then the follow-through of why are these characters oriented against each other in the way that they are, this episode right. kind of hand waves a little more yeah. than we're used to for the Rockford Files and a little more than, you know, I expect to see in this kind of story uh, and, and leaves things in this unsatisfying manner. But you can take that first 20 minutes of setup. Here's a, a, a scenario pregnant with tension ready to explode right. in different directions depending on what, you know, Rockford in this case does. I like that. The pregnant with tension, ready to explode, and it's got a nice 
future bureaucratic research scene that you can do <laughs> in the, as you go through the old archives that aren't cross-referenced because that would be a monumental task before computers. I, I do like how that is that is counterpointed by his call to the to uh, Julie, yes. who does have all of the insurance records in a computer that he can just cross-reference at a touch of a button. But the other thing that this made me think of was in that scene where he's writing things down and looking through these books, that recalls to my mind how programs nowadays are trying to find ways to make text messages work. In in Because that's so much a part of how we communicate nowadays. You know, like, how, how do we convey from uh, the character's point of view what they're communicating if they're just looking at a tiny little screen and typing? I think the, the idea of how do you visualize either internal or very first person specific experiences is pretty, yeah. is pretty relevant in sleight of hand that we talked about. They have a, there's a great sequence in there that's following Rockford as he's thinking about the case. Right. Right. Remember that? And how part of it's voiceover where mm -hmm. he's replaying the conversation he's already had, but it's kind of edited in that scene to highlight specific sentences. And then we're seeing his facial expressions as he thinks about those things. And then the camera shows us things that he's looking at, like street signs and a, and a bus stop bench. Yeah. So that as the audience, we can kind of stick with him as he's putting together these clues without doing dialogue or without having to write anything down. Yeah. And that's difficult, right? Like it is... A, it is a short scene, and you probably don't want to do that too many times in an episode. But uh, in context, it works really well. And I think this is another version of that, right? We're going to have the camera show what he's writing and then have the camera show him saying bingo so that we know he found the thing that he wanted to find. They didn't do it with this one, but having somebody on the phone is really good for mm -hmm. that because you can have them convey the information, but then they're isolated from the person they're talking to. So they can have facial expressions that reveal their inner mm -hmm. thoughts about the things. And I mean, that's a thing that we, that, that gets used commonly. I'm not inventing something here. When you're playing at a tabletop game, right? I often characterize tabletop role-playing games in my head in the more visual mediums, like yeah. televisions or Me movies too. or, you know, whatnot. But I think that if I were to do that scene from Sleight of Hand where Rockford is thinking through things, I'm playing this character who's trying to solve this mystery. Uh, I would share my inner monologue or even just summarize what I'm thinking or what my theory is with the rest of the players like you could in a book or a short story or, or something like that. But it would be kind of interesting to say, all right, this is what I'm thinking. Not say that out loud. Just figure out what your, your theory is and then find a way to visually describe it, you working through the theory before then dumping the theory on, on your fellow players. I think that could be a fun way to, to play that out. Well, and in a game, what that can be interspersed with the mechanics, right? Like, you have some kind of, you know, stat that's about insight or something that's about that. Can my character put these two things together? Roll some dice. Right. There's the result. What did, what did that represent? Well, that was me walking around and I'm replaying the conversation in my head. And you see me look at the look at the park bench. I think I've got it. So in a game, you're I think we're already naturally have lots of opportunities to say, what is this mechanical operation I'm doing? What does that mean for my character? Right. And yeah. usually that's expressed through what's my character doing? What action are they taking? But it can be what are they thinking or what are they feeling? One other element of this episode that I thought we should touch on, because I think it's done well in this one, 
Uh, this one does a pretty strong job with very few minutes on screen of showing some kind of relationship between Jim and uh, Mrs. Hartman and Billy Joe's mom. Yeah. That, outside of the plot, was kind of the most Rockford feeling to me. Yeah, yeah. It comes in a couple ways, and it's, again, not a lot of screen time, but it's reinforced well. Mm-hmm. Obviously, just the way they interact and they speak and their body language, they already know each other. But then without ever referencing why they know each other or what their relationship actually is or was. Right. The way that Mrs. Hartman offers to pay him and Rockford very gently says, no, that's not necessary. And then she insists. So he gives in, but then leaves the envelope behind. Right. There's so much you can assume about their background and their relationship yes. from that, that would be different if she insisted and he rejected her again, or he yeah. took it, but then gave it to Rocky to give back to her right. or some other thing. It's wonderful in the context of what we know about Jim mm-hmm. as well. Like, so we have by this point expectations about the episode. And one of those expectations is that nobody's going to pay him. Right. And here's somebody Who's not only going to pay him, but is going to hand him the money up front. So that says something about her character. Then he rejects it. And, I mean, we joked in the first part about how he's just got to reject some part of it. Like, that's right. what he, he does. He can't reject the job, so he rejects the money. <laughs> but we also know that he he needs the money. So it says something that he doesn't take the money. And then, like you said, it says something about how he doesn't take the money. And then when it comes up at the end of the episode, when she's like, oh, you must have left this. And he just... Yeah quickly redirects away from having to say no don't give it to me and then he leaves it on the table again you get the feeling that he really genuinely would feel wrong taking her money yeah they have the kind of friendship or relationship where he just wants to help but then she gets him back by paying for fixing his car which when you get right down to it is probably Way more than the yeah. <laughs> two or four hundred dollars he would have made for being on the job, and in kind of a, a, a another kind of nod towards some of the like class relationships, he doesn't want to take her cash, but if she's willing to make this happen for him in a way where he's they're not handling actual money, he's right. okay with that. The act of handing cash back and forth is low class, right? But doing favors for one another, even if it's expensive, is higher well, class. No, I, I think that that's a perfectly legit read. I uh, But uh, there's also the level of like, oh, she won that round. He's bringing his con man skills to play when he redirects her to drop it. Like that's a little a bit of stage magic yeah. or, you know, whatever that he's doing. And he thinks he's won. And then he shows up and he has lost that game. She one-upped him in a way where he now has to hand cash to her if he's going to pay her back mm-hmm. for it. There's no social way for him to do right. that. He can't just walk up to her and hand it without it being then an insult. Exactly. It's also really interesting to think about uh, Rockford has a job that people devalue because they don't think they should pay him for it. It's often they will bring up something about how his work wasn't exactly what they wanted because they, they have a vision of how... Mm-hmm you know, private eye should work or whatever. And and here's a case where somebody is willing to give him what he's worth and he's refusing her. And I feel like that that's an interesting discussion about that relationship. Does Rockford think he's scamming people when he's charging them $200 if he won't do it for a friend? And there are friends that he does it for 
that he makes them pay. Mm-hmm. He doesn't want Rocky to pay him, but then Rocky insists, and because it's his dad, what can he do? He can't say... No. Yeah. That's a different way that he has of talking him down, like, okay, you'll we'll split it, or I'll owe you, or, you know, that kind of thing. Right. The social cues that are negotiated, as you started this whole discussion off, that they help define for the audience what that relationship is between these two people. If he had that discussion with Angel, <laughs> we would be like... What? What's his deal with Angel? Like, what, what's going on here? It doesn't make sense for this. So that would mean that his relationship with Angel had changed in some way. Uh, well, I think that covers everything that I wanted to talk about from this episode, just by accident. Yeah. Do you have anything else to add? Unlike Jim, I will I will accept the 200 a day from Miss Hartman. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Thank you for joining us. Yes, thank you. Uh, thanks again for listening to 200 a day. As always, you can find us at 200aday.fireside.fm for archives of all of our episodes. We've referenced a lot of our older ones in this discussion, so if you want to go back Mm -hmm. uh, to some of our our first couple attempts at this whole podcast thing, you can hear us talk about those on Twitter at 200pod, and of course our Patreon at patreon.com slash 200aday. And with that, I think we will be back next time to talk about another episode of The Rockford Files.